protests across the country and right here at home in Columbus tonight with people calling for an end to detention centers at the southern U.S. border. Thanks for joining us for NBC4 at 11. I'm Mark While the state of Ohio has a lot of work to do in the area of tolerance, Columbus and a handful of other cities and towns in our state are consistently regarded as welcoming and diverse places. In fact, an increasingly diverse group of people want to live here. Many people don't know that Columbus has some 40,000 Somali immigrants, the second largest population in the U.S. Ohio now reports more than 100,000 immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa alone. Though Ohio's total population is not keeping pace with the growth of many states in the nation, what stability and population growth there is in our state, including the backbone of Ohio's workforce, is driven in large part by immigration flows. Each of these immigrant populations, of course, brings with it their unique cultures, which requires that Ohio's healthcare workforce and policymakers have the knowledge and the tools to ensure that these populations' needs can be met. Of course, being a welcoming city, a sanctuary for those looking to improve their lives, is one thing. But it is not lost on me that even as I record this, the Trump administration has initiated mass arrests and deportations of immigrants across the country. While it's not clear exactly to what extent this will take place in our community here in Ohio, it's nonetheless the case that a national police action against immigrants will have a chilling effect everywhere, with a potentially dramatic impact on the health of those populations and the health of our state as a whole. This is Prognosis Ohio, WCBE's Health Policy and Politics Report. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. Each week, we bring you a news roundup of health and healthcare developments in our state. Each week as well, we share with you an interview with someone in Ohio who is either making a difference in or has a unique perspective on health-related matters. Today's guest is first-term state senator Tina Maharath, who brings to her work a passion for working with and for Central Ohio's immigrant communities. Before turning to today's guests, though, it's time for our news roundup. First up, we have to talk about the latest court challenge to the Affordable Care Act and how Ohioans are responding to it. Texas v. Azar was initiated by 20 Republican state attorneys general and their governors, though back in April, Ohio's attorney general, Dave Yost, declined to join the effort. In a statement, Yost said, quote, repealing all of the ACA could leave 1.9 million Ohioans and more than 10 million people nationwide who have pre-existing conditions without medical coverage, end quote. Democrats in Ohio have universally opposed these challenges to the ACA, but it isn't yet clear how Republicans, who control most statewide offices and both chambers of the legislature, would respond if the Fifth Circuit ruled that the ACA was unconstitutional. If this happened, hundreds of thousands of Ohioans' access to affordable insurance would be threatened, and the pre-existing condition protections included in the ACA could be stripped. It's unclear what Yost and Governor DeWine will do, if anything, if millions of Ohioans lose their access to health care services. Next, Governor DeWine and the Ohio Department of Medicaid is asking for public input regarding the renegotiation of Ohio's contracts with the five managed care companies that insure Ohioans on Medicaid. Advocates are taking this opportunity to weigh in on Medicaid spending. Lauren Anthes, a friend of the show and my colleague at Ohio University, has pointed out that the state could use this renegotiation moment to tie a managed care organization's outcomes and performance to the money they receive from the government. Anthes has also suggested that through this process, insurers could be pushed to incentivize screening for non-medical problems in the doctor's office, given that things like housing, transportation, and food access greatly impact one's health, all things that we talk a lot about on this podcast. I won't shock the world in saying that I think Lauren is right. This is a real opportunity to expand how we think about health in Ohio. Ohioans who want to provide feedback to the state government about its renegotiation attempt can check our show notes for the link. 
Finally, one-fifth of Ohio House representatives have signed on to a bill that calls pornography a public health crisis. House Bill 180, introduced by Republican Jenna Powell, alleges that pornography is addictive, perpetuates human sex trafficking, inhibits the Me Too movement, increases incidences of rape, hypersexualizes children, impacts emotional and physical wellness, harms the family unit, and shapes, quote, deviant sexual desires, unquote. This bill will likely stir up debates in Ohio about freedom of speech, what sexual wellness or sexual health really mean, and what it means to declare something a public health crisis. Okay, that's it for today's news roundup. Senator Tina Maharath represents Ohio's 3rd Senate District, which includes a large and winding area stretching from the hilltop in the western portion of Columbus to Groveport and Canal Winchester in the south. It reaches up to the north in Gahanna and even Westerville. The district also includes Maharath's native Whitehall. Maharath is the ranking minority member on the Local Government, Public Safety, and Veterans Affairs Committee and sits on the Health, Human Services, and Medicaid Committee as well. To today's theme of immigrant health and cultural competence, it's worth noting that Maharath is the daughter of refugee parents from the Southeast Asian nation of Laos. She's also the first Asian American woman elected to the Ohio Senate. I spoke with Maharath at the WCBE studios about a wide range of health-related issues. Senator Tina Maharath, thanks so much for joining us on Prognosis Ohio. Yes, thank you for having me. So you've become a state senator uh, at a transitional time for the state. Uh, we have a new governor in place. I wonder if you could just, just to get into the conversation, tell us a little bit about what the first few months have been like uh, in this position. And keeping in mind also uh, for listeners that you're a member of the Health, Human Services, and Medicaid Committee. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about getting up to speed on these issues and how it's going. Well, it's been a wild ride. It's like an episode of The West Wing, but in real life. So my transition so far has been going from a civilian who is a financial advisor going to the world of public service uh, within an elected official realm, because I've always served the public, but in a different capacity. So now that I'm elected official, it's like uh, when you are going into public office, your life's also in the public office as well. So I have zero privacy now, but... The good thing about it is I'm a candid person in general anyway, so it wasn't a too hard of transitions, but then there would be some of those nicks and picks where I get told that I need to simmer down a little bit because that's not how normal politicians act. And I, I start the transition to a quote unquote what a normal politician acts. But the good thing is uh, with the health and Medicaid and human services committee, it's been a great transition for me to learn more outside the perspective in the political realm. I'm so used to being on the other side where we're always advocating for issues. We're trying to push for what's right for our little town of Whitehall. But now it's something that you have to think about from all of Ohio's perspective, considering other parts of Ohio, such as rural parts of Ohio, such as parts of the suburbs or even the urban areas. So you've been learning about those other areas just because now you're collaborating with other uh, elected officials as well and listening to their issues and in the whole compromising process of actually making legislation happen? Absolutely. Our committee is encompassed of several different legislators who are coming all, from all parts of Ohio with different upbringing. So it's, it's a little um, refreshing to hear a different perspective versus what I've been told my entire life. 
tell us about your district a little bit. What what are some of the the, the things that you really want to address? Are, are there specific health challenges in the Whitehall area? Uh, well, specifically with the Whitehall area, we have a big epidemic with um, opioids in general. And I think that our local municipalities, so our local elected officials have been doing really a great job on trying to tackle that issue, having a task force and tracking down the person who's actually selling the drugs and initiating everything versus jailing whoever is using the drugs, which mm-hmm. is a great perspective to look at versus trying to punish those who's using it. They're actually trying to get help for the ones who's using it versus punishing them just for using it because we all know that doesn't resolve a lot of issues. So the other parts of the district in terms of health care have been focused on actually getting coverage themselves. So the other parts of the district, such as Hilltop, also fights with the epidemic as well. So uh, I'm fortunate enough to also have a good local elected officials in the city of Columbus who also tackles the ones who's contributing versus the ones who's also using as well. So we're all trying to get a good initiative of the, for the ones who's using, we're trying to make sure they're getting treatment versus the ones who's contributing and selling, we're trying to make sure they get punishment. Right. So you are finding natural collaborators in a city maybe not a state, but certainly a city where there are a lot of people who really get the fact that we can't just lock up our people to get out of the opioid issue and also other addiction crises that are, are looming like methamphetamine and other things like that. Um, and also, I just, I'll note, I mean, the, th- the third Senate district is a really diverse district, very different kinds of neighborhoods. How do you, um, as a first-term senator, how, how do you think about that when you wake up each day and think about how you're going to use your time? Well, the good thing is I am a person in general who has different variations in life. So, you know, I came from um, Whitehall, of course. I was born and raised in Whitehall, but my parents were refugees from Laos during Vietnam War era. So my mom was, and um, her family was from uh, rice farming. So they were a bunch of rice farmers. And then my dad's family were public servants, whether it be a politician or serving the army. So when I think about how I'm going to start my day off, um, I think about which ones will have best interest to me and which one I can connect with very well first. So I prioritize with veterans. I prioritize with farmers, working families and fellow single parents. And I work my way around that way and then just uh, keep working my way through the group of people. So unfortunately, the last on the list were uh, pro-business folks, although I came from a private sector You know, there are a number of different bills that I know you're interested in. Um, for example, SB 117, uh, which requires that hospitals provide a range of services to sexual assault victims. And it seems that sexual assault is something that uh, you're passionate about addressing um, through the uh, legislation. Can you talk a little bit more about what, how you think about this issue and also what you hope to accomplish with that bill in particular? Well, I've never actually been personally sexual assaulted I want to say to the point where it's transparent. So my experience with it was I'm a codependent, you know, coming from a family who are refugees, coming from someone who grew up in poverty, we just naturally are codependent unless our trauma is treated. So the codependency I had was on relationships. So my Me Too story was my boyfriend and I um, had some relations, but so he basically raped me, but in my mind, so this is how codependency works. In my mind, I was thinking, oh, no, if I want my boyfriend to love me, I have to give him sex. So if I don't give him sex, he won't want me. So I let him have sex with me 
but without full consent, without I told them stop, I don't want to. Do you hear from constituents regularly who tell you stories like this? Yes, and their stories are horrific. It's so horrendous, and it makes me feel like my story is not as bad, even though it is bad, but their story, it, it just makes me want to fall to the ground crying and just give them a big hug. So that's why I try to correlate some uh, legislation for those who's going through sexual assault because there's a lot of mental damage in that, especially the ones who did not consent to this um, sexual relations, who had sexual assault from a complete stranger. I can only imagine what they're going through. So I am also a victim of PTSD as well from um, a lot of trauma going on in my life. So with me battling PTSD from other parts of uh, mental health versus the what's going on with sexual assault, I can relate about how bad damaging it is to your brain and how bad it is to your life and so on and so forth. So I try to correlate some legislations to try to make their life easier because I've been there, done that with PTSD. It's not an easy ride and it's actually not a enjoyable ride that I would ever wish upon on anybody. So when you say make their life easier, can you give us an example of what legislation might be able to actually accomplish? Like how will this actually help uh, address the issue? So providing the health care for those who are uh, victims of rape or sexual assault, getting them on plan B options or also providing them with health care to make sure that they are getting the mental health issues that they need resolved. And of course, getting the care they need to make sure they have primary care to try to be up to date with some of the issues, because it all starts with your body, yourself. So if you're not taking care of yourself, your body, your health, then you're not able to be a good constituent over to the state of Ohio. You're not able to add value anymore because you don't even value yourself. Yeah. Well, and and trauma is something that is persistent also within refugee communities. And you mentioned that your your parents were came in through the refugee program. Has that story, that common history, connected you to other people? Because Columbus has a vibrant refugee community as well from all sorts of different areas. Um, have you been able to have conversations to understand or to bring your own history to bear a little bit on understanding what refugees in Columbus and perhaps in the third Senate district uh, are going through today? Absolutely. Um, but the thing is, we got to break the stigma with health care because we're coming from third world countries where they don't have health care. So the stigma around it is we don't go to the doctors unless we're dying or we don't go to the hospital unless it's an emergency. Not to so, mention mental health care, especially exactly. with stigma. Yeah, yeah, that stigma for sure. It, the, the mental health care portion of the stigma, they just don't believe that we should treat what's wrong with us. They have other ways to cope. So most of the refugees and immigrants, they tend to go to substance abuse instead or they tend to sway into different parts of the world, which is just holding up their feelings, bottling it up, and letting it crash and burn in front of their face years down the road. You seem to have some some thoughts about medical education as well and kind of the cultural aspects of medical education. And I wonder if we could just talk about that. I mean, in your experience in with medical providers uh, in the Columbus area, We used to call it cultural competency. Increasingly, we call it cultural humility, really just trying to realize that we have so much to learn about how uh, other people might be processing uh, what's happening in a medical office. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, that passion of yours, that interest of yours for improving the workforce, the providers for healthcare in, in central Ohio and kind of where you come to that issue? So I come to the issue from two realms. Um, one is being a survivor of child abuse and two is being a child to refugee parents. So from the first 
perspective from a child or from a victim of a child abuse, it came from the fact that they there was this one appointment I specifically remember of my healthcare provider. Um, she had asked my dad to step out of the room so that she and I can talk personally, and she had noticed some signs on my arms of abuse. Like uh, she she specifically listed an example of someone groping my arms and shaking. And with me being a child and me being a child to refugees, thinking that child abuse was just a form of punishment, I just told her, oh, no, like I made up a story. My story at the time was I had my arms hanging over my metal futon bed and that's where I got the bruises. Mm -hmm. But because of her medical education, she was able to pinpoint the signs of child abuse. And those are the type of signs that we need to pinpoint within the medical education field. And I'm sure there's more signs out there, but it's just that one experience I had made me realize that if a woman who's never met me a day in her life noticed these little signs. I can only imagine how many more victims she could save outside of child abuse. Maybe she could possibly save someone of um, victim of human trafficking or et cetera. The list goes on, but it all starts with the education. So as listeners may know, I mean, you've had a really interesting political story coming into this election and, um, One of the results of that story is that you have an interesting relationship with Republicans and Democrats. You kind of slot in in a way that's very unusual. You walk to your own beat. Just talking about your own life, you're very open about being a single parent, for example. That seems to be something that drives your your, your thinking about a number of issues. Can you just talk a little bit about the the importance of talking about things? Uh, It could be potentially very powerful. Yes. So I have a saying that you need to embrace the glorious mess that you are because if there is no problem then we won't make a problem so that will break a lot of stigma Uh, if you just talk about your story talk about what you went through then it's going to help us legislators for as long as you don't we're going to keep legislating based off of interest groups or lobbyists because we're not having constituents speak up and speak out and that's what democracy is supposed to be like you're supposed to have a free speech it's our constituents who are driving us and it's also the constitution who drives our right to do that because i'm coming from a family who was so conserved because i came from a nation where you're not allowed to do that so it, it's a work in progress, but just me being able to be so candid about my life is nothing that came overnight. It took a lot of progress, especially coming from the world of immigrants and refugees, where we're all conserved because of the countries that we're coming from. So in order for us to break through with the correct legislation, we need to bring a new perspective, which is having these constituents speak up and speak out. And I'm fortunate enough to live in a district where they're starting to do that. And it's great. I recently heard a, a podcast interview with the mayor of Whitehall, uh, which was really actually very interesting. I mean, there there are some very progressive things going on there and some bold positions that probably wouldn't have been acceptable 10 years ago, where, where we are moving away from law and order kind of approaches, especially in the healthcare space. So I wonder if we could just end on one note, which is before we started recording today, you mentioned to me, well, I don't want to be a one-term senator. I don't, that's not your plan. So you do hope to be, to be at this for a while and to build towards something. What do you ultimately, in healthcare specifically, what, what does it look like if you've been a successful state senator? What are some things you hope to be able to point to and say, this was worth it, this was successful? Cultural competency, for sure. So the second portion of that story was coming here as a child of refugee parents. Having that relationship with my medical providers where they acted like we were stupid or they acted like we were silly people, 
that having those cultural competency courses will help break that a lot. And it will reduce some of the stigmas with some of the refugee immigrants community to go to your medical providers and have preventative care versus finding out you have cancer and you have a couple months to live. So when that happens is when I can make sure my career, it feels like I made it, the quote unquote, I made it in America life because I want to be able to say that, yeah, I helped the uh, refugee and immigrant community get preventative health care because I did that. Well, obviously, that would be a huge accomplishment. And um, there are thousands and thousands of people in Columbus, in the Columbus area and Whitehall uh, who would who are in need of that. So um, thanks for that focus. And I can say as a medical educator, um, we also need folks like you um, who are in the trenches on the legislative side, but also very connected to your community to keep reminding the future physicians and future clinicians that they have more work to do toward that cultural humility. Thanks very much for joining me today. And I, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much to Senator Maharath for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us at the WCBE studios. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner, Kyle Rosenberger, and Mark Franz. Jory Gomes assists with background research and copy. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio through WCBE's podcast experience webpage, where, by the way, you can also find the show notes for this episode. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and really wherever else you get your podcasts. We would love it if you'd leave a positive review so we can continue to grow the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at prognosisohio and email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Your suggestions and feedback are welcomed. Finally, as we do work on growing this show, making it a solid foundation for ongoing conversations about important issues in health and healthcare in Ohio, we will be looking for some financial support. If you're interested in underwriting the podcast, please do be in touch. Until next time.